0: I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the sixth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us and we'll explore the future of money, the rise of Pentecostalism, the disappearance of the human mind, the challenges facing journalism in the 21st century, the limits of science, and the relationship between science and religion, as well as the question of where does all the money go? OK, so here's the spoiler, right up front. The answer is a trillion pounds, give or take. Britain costs about a trillion a year. By which, of course, we mean we raise and spend roughly that much to keep the whole show on the road. Health, schools, defence, social care, the lot. That bit's easy. Rather more complex is tracing where the money comes from and where it goes, And harder still is working out whether that money is being raised or spent efficiently, fairly, or even, whisper it, wisely. Thankfully, there are people whose full-time job it is to try and answer those questions objectively. And the individual you're most likely to be familiar with in that endeavour is Paul Johnson, director of the highly respected Institute for Fiscal Studies. His new book is called Follow the Money, How Much Does Britain Cost? And he joins us this week on the podcast. Paul, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you. We establish in the first line of your book that the total UK spending is about £1.18 trillion a year. What's that as a percentage of GDP and how do we compare to other countries?
1: that's somewhere around 40% of national income. So the government is essentially responsible for about spending about £4 in every 10 that the economy produces. That's quite a lot. It's an awful lot more than obviously it would have been 100 years or so ago. Uh, relative to our Western European neighbours, though, it's not so much. If you look at France and Germany, very successful economies, they've got much higher fractions of national income. I think France is probably at 50% or more. And indeed, most of our Western European neighbours have bigger... States than we do. Look outside of Europe to other parts of the OECD, though, and you see smaller numbers. So, in in the US, in Australia, in Far Eastern countries, you tend to see smaller states, smaller spending. Obviously, in the US, they they don't have anywhere near as big a welfare state, and the same is true in some other Anglophone countries. So, we're a curious mix, then, aren't we, of Western European, vaguely kind of
0: Christian or social democratic states and US Anglo-Saxon smaller states? Is that fair?
1: Yeah, as with many things, we sit a little bit mid-Atlantic in some of this. And actually, one of the things that I say probably more often than I should in the book is that you can have a European-scale welfare state with European-scale tax or an American-scale welfare state with American-scale tax, but you can't have American taxes and European welfare states. And we're not always entirely honest about that, I think it's probably fair to say. Well, we all want our cake and eat it, don't we, to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to coin a phrase. Straight the cake is, um. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, obviously, you know, we want, and quite rightly, we want the best public services we can have for the smallest amount of money that we can pay. But very often politicians are inclined to claim that we can um, have low levels of tax and yeah. uh, high levels of spending, or at least high levels of public service, and that's not so easy. And the size of the UK state has increased, hasn't it? That tax burden has increased recently, is that right? Yeah, the tax burden particularly has increased over... um, It's increasing at the moment, actually, over the 2020s. So if you look over quite a long period, the tax burden's been remarkably stable. I mean, it's, it's bounced up and down, but broadly speaking, it's been in a... Uh, A range between about 32 and 34% of national income for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, And over this decade, it's probably going to hit 37 to 38% of national income. And my view is that it's going to stay there. I don't think it's going to come back down to where it's been probably in my lifetime. And that's quite a big deal because that's another 100 billion or so being taken from the economy in tax and there's a reason for that which is that the population's aging we're spending more and more on health we've managed to grow our welfare state without growing the tax burden for a long period partly because we've been gradually cutting the amount we spend on defense we obviously had a decade of austerity over the 2010s we stopped building houses at the end of the 1970s we've moved out of nationalized industries and so on looking forward we will spend more on health i think that's inevitable Pensions and social care pressures are going to remain there. I struggle to see, I could be lacking in imagination, but I struggle to see where we're going to make the big cuts, which will allow more spending in those areas. And if we can't make cuts to allow spending in those areas, then inevitably, I think, we're going to have a higher tax burden. But these are political choices. We can decide to have less in the way of welfare or less in the way of health or less in the way of education. But I don't see that happening even under a Tory government. That's the fascinating thing,
0: isn't it? The Tories aren't known for... Taxing and spending, and yet the projection is that it's going to increase in spite of having had a Tory government.
1: Yeah, obviously we've had very significant cuts in spending over the over the twenty ten, so there was a, a real a real pushback on the size of the state over that period. But two things are making this much much harder than it otherwise would be. One is that we've got very little growth, and we've had very poor growth over the last considerable period, actually. But I mean, our economy today, in early 2023, is still no bigger than it was more than three years ago, and growth over this year is looking fairly poor. Mm. So when you're not growing, it makes things harder. I mean, as a fraction of national income, we spend a fairly normal amount on health, but as our national income has fallen relative to that of other countries, that feels much tighter. So that's one part of the problem. The other part of the problem, of course, is we've got a large stock of debt now, and the interest on that debt is rising to sort of the highest sustained kind of level it's been in 60 or 70 years. And if you've got lots of spending on debt interest, then that's obviously less for other stuff. Well, I was going to ask about that. You talk about as income tax, national insurance, VAT.
0: When you top those up, when you top up the other taxes, we still have a shortfall of about 108 billion a year. Now, we raise that, we meet that shortfall through borrowing, right? Is that sustainable over the long term?
1: Yeah, well, we've always borrowed. I mean, there are very few years in the last 100 years where we haven't borrowed, and that's absolutely fine. If you're borrowing a certain amount and your economy is growing then the overall debt as a fraction of the economy won't be growing. And, indeed, if you look over the period from the end of the Second World War through the 1960s, we ended the Second World War with a huge pile of debt, something 250% of national income or something. And that came down quite fast, despite the fact that we were actually borrowing a bit every year. And that's because the economy was growing quite fast, both in real terms and in nominal terms. So when the economy is growing fast, you can borrow and, and the debt burden falls. What we've got at the moment is an economy that's not growing fast, Mm. uh, not growing fast at all. So usually when you've got a high level of debt, the amount of interest you pay doesn't vary with the interest rate because the interest is set at the point at which you sell the debt. But because first, a lot of our debt is linked to inflation, and obviously inflation is very high, and second, a lot of it's held by the Bank of England and the interest you pay on it is linked to the bank of england base rate actually for a large fraction of our debt what we pay varies year by year and it's gone up a lot particularly as the bank of england base rate has gone up so we're in a more difficult position because of that lack of growth and the way that our debt is structured than perhaps we have been in times past but absolutely this does not mean we can't borrow at all and indeed very rarely in history have we not borrowed yes
0: I mentioned their three main taxes: income tax, raising about two hundred and fifty billion a year; national insurance, one hundred and seventy-five billion; and VAT, one hundred and fifty-seven
1: billion. This is odd question. Which is your favourite? Which which tax works? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The point about those three taxes is that they are about two thirds of all tax revenue, and it's really important to get these things in perspective when one's thinking about you know. What can you do if you want to make a really big difference to the amount of revenue that we're raising? And the answer is, almost always, you have to do something with one of those. And that's what's happening at the moment. We're getting a load more from income tax over the next few years as we freeze taxes and allowances do i have a favorite well i'll tell you what my least favorite one is that's national insurance contributions that's a a hangover from the past it's only levied on earned income and not on unearned income it's only levied on people under pension age it creates an awful lot of complexity my favorite one in terms of the amount of fun that it creates is vat you might find that surprising but there's some quite interesting examples if you want a pet get a rabbit there's no vat on rabbits because they're edible uh then there's some extraordinary rules about what vat is chargeable on there's something in there called the fur skin flow chart it's actually published by the hmrc and it tells you whether there's vat payable on certain kind of clothes depending on the amount of fur and skin in those clothes and the very final question is does the goat come from mongolia yemen or tibet (laughs) And actually, whether there's VAT on it depends on whether the fur from the goat comes from a goat from one of those countries. Why? I have absolutely no idea. But anyway, that gives us lots of fun.
0: It's, well, funny you should say that. In the previous series, we spoke to Michael Keane about his book, Rebellion, Rascals and Revenue, which is a history of taxation. And the episode is called Why Tax is Fun, because there are some fantastic stories. <laughs> and I think you quote at one point about detailed VAT legislation is indistinguishable from satire at some point.
1: Yeah, to be fair, that was a quote I took from this uh, tax lawyer, Dan Niebu- who runs this organisation called Tax Policy Associates. But it's a great quote, because Mm. as soon as you get down to very specifics, it's almost a random decision as to whether it's got VAT on it or not. On a slightly more sober level, the whole income tax thing is very interesting. I was
0: really struck by the fact that you point out that it's not paid by about 40% of adults. And at the other end, the top 1% of earners contribute 30% of income tax. That's a remarkable kind of balance, isn't it?
1: Yes, and it reflects, of course, the distribution of income in the country. So 40% of adults are either not earning or earning less than £12,500 a year. So if you're a pensioner and you've only got state income, then you're not going to be paying income tax. If you're a student, you're not going to be paying income tax. Or if you're a parent staying at home while your partner's out at work, because it's an individual basis, you won't be paying income tax. If you're um, working 10, 15 hours a week at a low wage, you're not going to be paying income tax. And actually, four in 10 people are not paying income tax. Now, a lot of them aren't poor in the way we would think of poor. I mean, students, they're at a particular point in their lifetime and on the whole be perfectly well off over their lives. People who are part of a couple or a family are as a unit's poor, even if they may be at some risk as an individual. But obviously, we also do have you know, a large fraction of people who are on very low incomes. People are out of work on disability benefits, on universal credit, and so on. So we do have a large chunk of the population who are on really quite low incomes. And at the other end of the scale, the reason that you know, 1% pays such a very large fraction of income tax is because got a very large fraction of income. Yeah. So to be in the top 1% of incomes, you need to be on a, above around about 150000 a year, Top 0.1%, you need to be around about 650,000 a year. So big, big difference between top 1%. So top 1% are mostly wage slaves like you and I, sort of, you know, their PAYE income. They might be doctors or seniors or servants or working in finance or uh, lawyers or, or what have you top 0.1%, about a third of them, of getting their income from capital gains and business ownership and their partners in big firms and very focused on the financial services. Yes industry. So I do kind of think when people talk about the top 1%, they really mean the top 0.1% very often. Well, that's very interesting, because
0: there is a narrative alive in public discourse around, look, we just need to rinse the rich a bit more, really, we've got some massive inequalities, and much of our fiscal problems would be solved if we just tax people who had a huge amount of money. But actually, we are already. And even if we did more, my impression is, it wouldn't make that much of a difference.
1: Yeah. So you talked about the sort of surprise having a conservative government, which has increased tax burden. They've actually particularly increased taxes on the rich. Now, that's not part of the you know, usual understanding of what's happened, but mm. there's a whole series of things that have happened. Uh, you effectively pay a 60% marginal tax rate between 100 and 125,000 a year. You now pay 45% on everything over 125,000 a year. That's much more than we had in the past. Um, despite the changes in the recent Budget the pension tax relief system is much less generous to high earners than it used to be. So the degree to which the tax system hits the rich is harder now than it was. That said, there are definitely things that we could and, in my view, should do. Mm-hmm. A lot of the very rich get their money not from earnings but from capital gains or from their partners in big financial firms or they've got money from private equity, which they often take as capital gains or their business owners. All of that kind of income is taxed less heavily. An right. earned income. And we also have this issue with non DOMs who we have a sort of regime for people who say they're not domiciled here, which is more generous than in most other mm. countries. So you could certainly do some things to make the system, in my view, both more equitable and more efficient. But there are constraints here. And one of the constraints is that quite a high fraction of the very, very highest earners, very highest income people, were actually born abroad. About a third, something like that. Right. So They literally could leave the country if they wanted to. Now, we don't know kind of quite how big an effect certain changes in the tax regime would have, but we are quite dependent on them for our tax revenue. So we might not want to take too many risks. Within all of this, there are definitely things you could do, but would it be transformational? No, it would get you a few extra billion, and a few extra billion is good, and a few extra billion from very rich people is very good, uh, arguably. But is it going to really shift the dial in terms of what we need to do? Probably not. No. No.
0: We've talked about raising money. Let's talk about spending the money. And you've alluded to this already. The size and the shape of the state has changed enormously over the last 40 years, hasn't it? Give us some of the highlights about how not just the size, but the
1: shape of the state has changed, say in your, my lifetimes, 40, 50 years. Yeah, the big change in the shape of the state has been the increasing dominance of spending on health. So if you look at public service spending, the fraction of that going on health has increased from something like about a quarter at the beginning of the century to about well over 40% in the mid-2020s. So that's extraordinary. I mean, more than £4 in every 10 that we spend on public services is now just on health. You use that brilliant analogy with Prussia don't
0: you about how Voltaire described the Prussian state as an army with a state and increasingly yeah. you say that the UK is a health service with a state
1: attached to Indeed. it. Indeed and actually we're not unique in that I mean we, we don't spend unusually large amounts on a health service. Relative to Western Europe they spend more on things like pensions and some other bits of the welfare state than we do but in having spending a lot on health is not unusual mm-hmm. and you know, as we Grow richer over long periods of time, you'd expect us to spend more on health. And it's one of these things where actually, as you get better at healthcare, it becomes more expensive the trouble is if you invent something which keeps someone alive then they go away and they come back and get ill again so yeah. um, actually getting better at providing health care makes it more expensive not less expensive very often and instantly that was of course counter to the expectations when you're in
0: back in the 40s the argument was that you know we've got a healthier population that the health budget
1: would decrease mm. but of course as you say exactly the opposite happened mm. yes it's, it's quite interesting looking back at the expectations back in the 1940s now to what extent this was genuine and to what extent this was a sort of way of persuading the Treasury and the population—it's—it's it's hard to tell at this distance. But certainly, you read back some of the documents then, and the claims were that you know, at most, health spending would remain the same, and it might well fall over time as it got caught up with a backlog of health problems. Absolutely not what's happened. Arguably, that should have been um, expected and understood. Yeah. Nigel
0: Lawson once famously remarked that the NHS is the closest the English have to a religion. And you intimate in the book that you think he's right and you think this is rather dangerous and that our attitude to the NHS
1: is actually a
0: bit problematic. Unpack that for
1: us. Yeah I think it is problematic not because I think there's anything wrong in principle with having health which is free at the point of use it's more that we struggle I think nationally to have a sensible discussion about or policy on health. Actually we're quite good at some things I think we're rather better at talking about pensions than the French are for instance. (laughs) Um, We should uh, explain the French have been rioting the last few days because Macron wants to increase the pension age to 64 doesn't he? Exactly exactly which feels quite sort of modest uh, relative to where we are but if you look at health then we've got nothing to look down on anyone else about because we seem to find it very difficult to believe that uh, there's can possibly ever be anything wrong with the NHS it is something of a national religion despite all the scandals that we've had over time I'll talk about one or two of them in the book where you know lots of people have died because of failures in the health service and it's been very hard to unpack that because it's there's a sort of culture of you know we are we are the nhs we can't be wrong yes. and a culture of defensiveness which you don't actually see even in other public services let alone in some private sector areas and a sort of almost a sort of public unwillingness to recognize that of course the nhs uses the private sector that's where most drugs come from yeah. and actually the private sector is quite good at doing some things and as long as this is still free at the point of use the nhs should see itself as making sure that things are delivered rather than necessarily being the organization that delivers everything and indeed that's what happens it's just that we struggle to talk about it in a very sensible way Yes, that's very perceptive. There's a
0: degree of sanctity and holy ground here, and any mention of the word privatisation
1: has people panicking, whereas, as you say, that's not how a sensible discussion works. The word privatisation is often used by people just trying to scare others for political reasons, and one of the things that really frustrates me about discussion about health is very often you'll have someone go on the radio or television and say, well, what we can't have is something like the United States. Well, no, we can't. Of course you can't. Again, as I say in the book, it's rather like saying we've got a fantastic cricket team because we beat france or a fantastic football team because <laughs> we beat monaco well yes our health service isn't as mad as the american one but actually it's not as good as the dutch one the french one the german one and many others it's really bad at keeping us alive yeah, it's really yeah. bad at keeping us alive and if we could learn say
0: one thing from the dutch or western european healthcare system that we could
1: realistically import into our own what would it be It's difficult to answer that, but I think uh, just actually a much better management and organisation of the whole system. I mean, I don't think we can necessarily import their methods of funding and so on, but we can learn to just deliver this thing a lot more efficiently. As opposed to the repeated re-disorganisations, that's a lovely word from the book, repeated (laughs) re-disorganisations that the NHS has been subject to. Exactly. As one of the people quoted in the book says, if health reorganisations were an Olympic sport, we'd win gold every time. (laughs) So, health, £180 billion
0: a year, not very far behind pensions, £135 billion a year and £110 billion of those on state pensions. Now, I think we're roughly the same age, and you comment in the book that when we were growing up, pensioners were amongst the poorest people in the country, and now
1: they're not. What changed? Gosh, really, but if you're the same age as me, you've worn a lot better than <laughs> I have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel young, I can promise you that. <laughs> Um, uh, Yet, so if you go back to the early 80s, pensioners were much more likely to be poor than any other part of the population, and indeed we had some of the poorest pensioners in the developed world, and actually one of the triumphs of social policy in the last 50 years has been that that's no longer true. We have done an enormous amount to if not quite eradicate, but certainly massively reduce pension or poverty. So what's changed? Well, two big things. One is that benefits, means-tested benefits and pension benefits provided by the state have become more generous, certainly in recent years, certainly since 2000. So there's now a huge leap in your income. If you're out of work at 65, just before state pension age, and you're dependent on the state because you can't work at work for Mm every reason, you get an enormous leap in your income when you get to 66, at which point you get entitlement to pensioner benefits. So we've become much more generous to pensioners relative to non-pensioners when it comes to, to welfare provision. And the second part is that over a period of time, partly through the state earnings related pension scheme, which is now been disbanded, and through significant numbers of people having occupational pensions and other savings, now we've got a large fraction of pensioners with significant savings and incomes of their own from private sources, much more than we would have had 30 or 40 years ago. My concern is that that's not necessarily going to be translated into the next generation when they get to pension age defined benefit occupational pensions are dead outside of the public sector and the personal pensions the auto enrollment we've replaced them with a much less generous and of course with zero interest rates which we had until very recently very hard to build those up into any significant levels i worry that there's a degree of complacency about pensioners because the current generation is fine but it's not clear to me the next generation will be yeah
0: so we've done health, we've done pensions, third in the list in terms of amount spent is poverty and working age welfare, 108 billion a year. This, I think, was particularly interesting because we've talked a little bit about the founding of the welfare state in the 1940s. And the vision there was that you would give people money when they were out of work and you wouldn't need to give them money when they were in work because they'd be earning. And therefore they wouldn't need the state to support them. That's completely changed, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The Beveridge vision was of a a welfare state based on an insurance principle. And his assumption was if you're in work and you only had one child, then you didn't need any support. And that you could insure most of the risks. I mean, people needed support out of work if they were sick or if they were unemployed. Well, all of that's changed. So certainly through the 1970s, we got a huge increase in the number of lone parents who weren't supported by that insurance principle. So they became dependent on means-tested benefits. Those insurance benefits were in any case only ever set at roughly the minimum level. So a lot of people got on means-tested benefits anyway. He never sorted out the problem of housing costs, which of course vary across the country. So there was always a housing benefit system stuck on top. And then in recent years, we've got this big increase in in work poverty so um, now the majority of people who are poor on official definitions or if you prefer the majority of people at the bottom of the income distribution are actually in work so put all of that together and we've moved from a world in which Um, In the 1970s, the majority of benefits were these sort of conditional benefits, insurance-type benefits. Now, the vast majority are means-tested benefits, of which universal credit is the biggest. And it's really worth being clear about this. Universal credit is not a minority sport. About a quarter of households at any one point, working-age households, will be on universal credit. Probably about 40% of us maybe even getting on for a half, will be on universal credit at some point in our life. So this is not something that's just a small thing for the poorest 5%. At any one time, a quarter of households will be on universal credit.
0: And I get the impression from the book that you're, if I can put it this way, cautiously positive about universal credit. You acknowledge the implementation problems. There were certainly problems about the whole rhetoric of universal credit being caught up with that of austerity in the 2010s. But as a reorganisation of an immensely complex system that came under huge pressure during
1: the Covid pandemic it held up pretty well yes I think there's two or three things to separate about universal credit as you say it got infected by austerity and so its proposed generosity gradually fell over time but so did the generosity of the system it was replacing so it wasn't a universal credit thing it was just a sort of being meaner with with benefits thing. Mm -hmm. Secondly, there were huge problems about its implementation. I mean, it's still some way off fully implemented. What is it now? 12 years after it was announced and about six years after it was supposed to be fully implemented. But now we've got this quite modern, digital, reasonably effective system in place with less dramatically bad work incentive problems than what it replaced. In other words, we still take a lot of money away from people as they earn more, but less than we Mm Uh, so it doesn't discourage people going into work? As much. It As still, much. still does. So that's better. And, and it works during the pandemic in a way that the previous system would have collapsed. Mm. So from that point of view, we've got something to build on. The biggest worry which work here at the IFS has indicated is that it's quite good, actually, at encouraging people into work. But it's really bad at getting people into good, well-paid and full-time work. So a lot of the changes that we've made over the last 25 years – have encouraged people into work but into poorly paid part-time work. And the benefits to the economy from that are relatively limited and the benefits to the individuals from that are relatively limited. And the big challenge, I think, for the next decades is to work out how, and I don't know the answer to this, how to help people off benefits altogether, or at least into higher paid and higher quality work. Because otherwise we're
0: stuck with this system whereby the state benefit system is effectively subsidising poorly paid
1: and insecure work, right? Yes, there's certainly a lot of that, and it's particularly part-time work. One of of the shocking things is that being in work for a lot of people, being in work part-time, is almost as bad for their future earnings as not being in work at all. Yes. And the benefits to some largely encourages people into part-time work rather than full-time yep. work. There's another idea when we're talking about working-age
0: welfare that's very buzz at the moment, universal basic income which you describe
1: as moonshine in the book. (laughs) Why? Sorry, I'm really quite rude about uh, universal basic (laughs) income. What do the proponents of universal basic income broadly say? They basically say they want a system which is infinitely simpler than what we've got at the moment, gives everybody a certain amount of income which they can then build on and which is just about enough to live on. Well, we can argue about what's just about enough to live on, but on any reasonable level, you might think it's, I don't know, a quarter of average earnings, broadly speaking, where the state pension is that would sort of almost by definition take about a quarter of national income that's not exactly the right answer but it would take a lot to pay for that and that would still not be enough for people with high housing costs or with costs associated with disability or whatever so you'd still need to build other parts of the social security system on top and you'd have a very very high level of taxation to pay for it but there is no universal basic income anywhere in the world ever and reason. there is a reason for that. Yes. And so uh, it frustrates me when people talk wisely about, well, we, maybe we should think about it. No, we shouldn't. We should think about something that's actually practical. Starting from, let's think about universal basic income, is not, in my view, a very helpful way of starting a yeah. discussion. One more policy area before we pull the strands back together,
0: which is education. Schools spend 53 billion a year. Post-school education, well, the figures are much, much smaller. And that's one of the things that really struck me. More broadly, I've been struck by how we've obsessed about university tuition fees in the last 15 years or so. And you point out how much the school's budget has been cut in that time. And actually, when it comes to further education, how very, very little we spend. And given how much rhetoric there is around future is wedded to good education... That seems to me to be an enormously
1: missed opportunity. Absolutely, and it's another area in the book where I probably become a little bit intemperate in my irritation at, uh, at what's happened. There is this enormous focus on higher education. Of course, higher education is important. Of course, higher education fees and funding and so on are important. But we haven't focused anywhere near enough on the fact that it's 2023 now. We spend roughly the same per school child as we did in 2010. 13 years without any increase is astonishing mm. in a world in which you think this actually matters for growth. But the thing that really riles me is our lack of attention to further and vocational education. A tiny, tiny fraction of people end up with a qualification at a level between A levels and degree level, in particular in vocational technical And other roles where we know that they're valuable. We know that we do less of that than most other European countries. And we've dramatically reduced funding for further education in a way that uh, makes schools look like they're rolling in money. But the first priority for me in the education system is what happens between 16 and 19 for those who are not going to go on to university because we know that we have lowest level of numeracy and literacy skills for 21-year-olds, people in their early 20s, or pretty much anywhere Mm. in the developed world. We really, really lose ground in that age 16 to 19 Mm. area. It's
0: often said that one of the reasons why pensions have such political salience is because pensioners vote. And I do wonder whether the same point about further education and tertiary education can be made in the sense that people who write newspaper columns have gone to university. And that's what we hear about. And those who have poor numeracy and literacy rates aged 16 to 19, you don't hear about them so much, at least not from them. And this then homes in on the wider issue of how all these fiscal issues dovetail with the dynamics of democracy and the way in which sometimes government pays more attention to certain sectors in society, not because they necessarily merit more attention, but because they're loud or because they're able to articulate their needs and their requirements more. How do we address that? How do we make sure that those who are less well remunerated in the system, get heard more? How do we augment their voice in a democracy?
1: Well, that's a very good question. Uh, yeah, I think I think a classic example of this is when we're thinking about planning policy. So people who own their homes in a nice place, quite understandably not keen on having more houses built around them, even though that is vital to those who can't afford houses at the moment or can't find places to live. And you see it again and again and again. One group, because they're concentrated and in a particular area, they have a very obvious loss, you have a much louder and more effective voice than the other dispersed group who don't have that kind of voice. And I think this is somewhere where you can understand the pressures on politicians who end up doing, in my view, the wrong thing, mm. um, whether that be on tax or planning or infrastructure or trade or what have you, because the immediate pressures are much more obvious than the long term gains. And uh, how you move from here to there, it's very hard to tell. I mean, we have had examples in the UK in the last 50 years in which governments have done big things. Obviously, the Thatcher government in the 80s, whatever you think of them, the Blair government in the 2000s, whatever you think of them, they did make big reforms, um, not all of which were popular at the time. So that tells me you need something to do with the leadership, the size of the parliamentary majority, the time in power, and the sort of sense of purpose and, and vision, whatever people think about that. Now, how you achieve that, one thing I often say, it's very easy for me as a sort of wonky think tanker or commentator to say things, much harder for politicians to do them when they have to face the electoral consequences. Again, this is about trade-offs, isn't
0: it? I mean, one of the points that comes through in the book is that there is a lack of long-term thinking with regards to the size and shape and the cost of the state. But then if you're worried about the next electoral cycle, that's not entirely surprising. So there is this tension about our politicians to be democratically accountable to us, and five years is quite a long time, and yet you want them to think longer term and not simply
1: re-disorganise what the previous bunch did because they were voted out a few years ago further education is an obvious example where things just keep getting changed every time a new lot come in is really depressing but there are other things which are much less forgivable I mean we had in the recent budget in March of this year a big change to corporation tax broadly speaking in the right direction but to offset a big increase in the corporation tax rate announced two years ago and this big change was announced two weeks before the beginning of the new tax year. Yes. They've had two years since they announced the big increase. They could have announced this change at the time of the big increase or you know, a year ago. And they've also announced this to be Probably temporary, but possibly not temporary. You know, it's just one example of something where actually there isn't any excuse, electoral or any other, it seems to me, for a lack of direction or strategy when you're looking at long-term infrastructure needs. I mean, we've seen the nonsense around HS2 again over recent weeks. We know that transport infrastructure in the north is a disaster, Mm. and for decades, government after government has failed to do anything about that. Um, We've seen sort of energy strategy after energy strategy. We've seen, I can't remember, more than one housing minister a year for the last last 13 years. So it is difficult, some of this, but Governments make it far more difficult for themselves than they need to and far more difficult and damaging for us than they need mm. to. So even within the constraints of political difficulties, this is still not good enough, yes. frankly. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So it's important to emphasise then that there is ineptitude
0: there and there are egos and there's short-termism. But the takeaway message I do get from the book is one of... Sympathy, I guess you'd say very early on. You know, there are always trade offs to be made here. There are no simple solutions to tough problems of public policy. There's a degree of dishonesty about tax versus the size of the state. And you say at one point, without real understanding of the genuinely difficult decisions politicians have to take all the time, a breakdown of trust is inevitable. So, underneath all this, there is a kind of a plea, isn't there, for a more grown up conversation and better understanding of the difficulties there are around tax and
1: spend. Yes, and I think this is where one gets really frustrated with the sort of cake-and-eat-it rhetoric that one gets. And again, it's sort of understandable because politicians don't like to say that someone's going to lose or someone's not going to win as much as someone else when you make these trade-offs. But people aren't daft. I mean, they understand that there have to be Trade-offs in these things, and we do need to be more honest about it. But no, it's not easy. I mean, if it was easy, we'd have solved it. Yes. If it was easy, we'd be doing much better. And it's not the case that all these politicians are evil, and they know the right answer, and they decide not to do it because they're horrible. I mean, partly obviously, different politicians have different ideological views, but even within that, they're always or should be understanding there are really tough trade-offs to be made among the different options that are open to them and one of the things they have to take into account is how is the electorate going to respond to what they're doing and there are things i'm saying in the book that i think we should do which i don't think we will do because it's just just is too electorally difficult i mean we, we we should base council tax on current values not values from 1991 we should stop it being regressive but you know, the losers will shout a lot louder than the winners, and so you can understand why politicians say, well, you know, let's just keep that one in its box for now. It's the Juncker line, isn't it? We all know
0: what to do. We just don't know how to get re-elected once we've done it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The book is called Follow the Money. How much does Britain cost? Paul Johnson, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you. Next week, I'll be speaking to the journalist El Hardy? On her book about the rise of Pentecostalism.
1: I think that there's a really compelling argument that rock and roll is secular Pentecostalism.
0: You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger, and our team includes Lizzie Harvey and Daniel Turner. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, it'll help other people discover the podcast.